We're going to be back in the book of Malachi this morning, back in the book of Malachi, sometimes called the prophet of God's advent, as he tells us that the Lord is coming. And uh, well, many of us were not ready. There's some things in our lives that we need to clean up, some sins that we need to repent of, but Malachi helps us identify those so that we might be ready to receive the Lord with gladness. Malachi, we're going to read chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5 together this morning, page 954 if you're using a pew Bible, Malachi 2, 17 through 3, verse 5. This is what we read. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. As far the reading of God's word, let's pray together and ask him to bless our study of it this morning. Father in heaven, we are eager to gather around your word again this day. We are eager to hear what you have to say to us. And so, Lord, having read now your word and, having, and preparing now to hear your word preached, we pray that in and through these things, you would speak to us and that you would help us to hear the voice of our Savior, of our shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, if you do not work, we labor in vain. And so we pray now that you would work among us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Where is the God of justice? This is the question that was being asked in Malachi's day. It had been almost 100 years, or maybe over 100 years, roughly 100 years, since the people of Israel had returned to the promised land from Babylon. The temple has been rebuilt. The sacrificial system has been restored. But life in Judah and Jerusalem was still hard. And it seems that the people of Israel uh, began looking around 
at their unbelieving, idol-worshiping neighbors. And noticing that from a material perspective, their unbelieving, idol-worshiping neighbors had it better than they did. And not surprisingly, the people of Israel were bothered by this. They had a problem with this. They did not think this was fair. I mean, they were the ones who worshipped God. They were the ones who offered sacrifices to God, even if some of those sacrifices might have been blemished. They were still the ones offering sacrifices to God, and yet it appeared that their unbelieving, idol-worshipping neighbors were the ones who were blessed by God. And the people of Malachi's day, they, they began to grumble against God in their hearts. They began to say sarcastically, oh, oh, we see how it is. Those who do evil are the ones God delights in. Those who do evil are the ones God blesses. Those who do evil are the ones God loves. Or, to put it another way, they were asking, where is the God of justice. This morning, I, I want us to see that this question that was being asked by the people of Malachi's day is a familiar question. And it's a wearying question. And finally, it's an answered question. All right? This question is a familiar question. This question is a wearying question, and this question, where is the God of justice? It's an answered question. So first, this is, this is a familiar question. Where is the God of justice? The people of Malachi's day were not the first ones to ask this question. The, the prophet Jeremiah asked this question. Jeremiah 12, 1 and 2, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You hear it, don't you? What Jeremiah is asking, where is the God of justice? Habakkuk 2 asked this question, he said, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? How long shall I cry violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Your law, O oh God, is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. Again, you hear it. What Habakkuk's saying, don't you? He's saying, where are you, O God of justice? Asaph, too, asked this question. Psalm 73, verses 12 and 13. He says, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence? Again, you, you hear the question, don't you? Where is the God of justice? 
Where is he? This is a familiar question. The people of Malachi's day weren't the the first ones to ask this question. They also, let's be honest, weren't the last ones to ask this question. No, we, we too ask this question. When we look out on the world, and when we see how the wicked just seem to carry on unopposed, or when we see the way righteous people suffer, Sometimes we think in our hearts, don't we? Where is the God of justice? I got to admit, when Kirk Cousins messed up his knee, that didn't seem fair, right? That's how I felt. When you see people who are righteous and who have a platform suffer, it's like, that doesn't seem right. When we look out on the world, when we say the way the evil advance unopposed or the righteous suffer, right? The question arises in our hearts, doesn't it? Where is the God of justice? Or, or maybe, maybe it's when we look at our lives and our circumstances and we compare them to others that we ask in our hearts, where is the God of justice? Preacher confession time, all right? Since, since I've moved back to, to West Michigan a year and a half ago, I have been confronted with the prosperity of a number of people who I grew up with. For example, bring my boys to football practice this fall, and I see countless people who I've known since kindergarten who I grew up with and went to school with, I see them also bringing their kids to football practice. And then I see see the cars they drive. Beautiful SUVs and pickup trucks. And then, then, you know, that that old exercise of envy starts kicking in 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 my heart. And I start thinking, why can't I have nice, expensive vehicles like that? Oh, wait, I remember because when they were getting ahead, paying off debt and setting themselves up for financial success, I was sitting in seminary, taking on debt and exhausting my savings account. While they were living in houses that were increasing in value by 200% over the last 10 years, I was living in a church-owned parsonage. That's why I can't drive a vehicle like that. And then I get really, really sinister and dark inside. Thanks a lot, God. This is what I get for answering your call to pastoral ministry. God, this isn't fair. What am I, what am I doing when I go through that little exercise of envy? I'm saying, where is the God of justice? This is a familiar question. It's familiar in scripture. It's familiar in our own hearts. Where is the God of justice? Let's notice second, this is a wearying question, a wearying question. Notice how this whole dispute between God and his people begins. The people are told in verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And the people answer, 
Very cocky in Malachi's day. Oh yeah, how? How have we wearied him? And God tells them it's by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them or by asking where is the God of justice? Now I think we should acknowledge that there there seems to be a difference between the way this question is asked by Jeremiah and Habakkuk and the way this question was being asked in Malachi's day. Jeremiah and Habakkuk asked this question, where is the God of justice, in the context of prayer. They ask this question even as they affirm that God is just in all his ways. They, they ask this question as those who, who, who do trust God. They're just simply wrestling with how their present circumstances fit together with God's justice. And, and I would say, in light of Habakkuk and Jeremiah, God seems to be much more patient with that approach than he is with the approach taken by the people of Malachi's day. The people of Malachi's day are not asking this question in the context of prayer. It seems they are asking this question amongst themselves. They are asking this question behind the Lord's back, sort of, as it were. They are, they are asking this question in a very cynical and unbelieving way. They're asking it as grumblers and complainers. I would say Asaph in Psalm 73 was probably doing the same thing, which is why he makes it clear in that psalm that this was a sinful thing for him to do. He says, when I was, when I was questioning God's justice, uh, my feet almost slipped. That is, I was going down the wrong path. I wasn't paying attention. I was sinning. That's what Asaph is acknowledging there. But make no mistake, those who grumble against the Lord's justice, those who continually look out on the world and evaluate God's providence with the words, that's not fair, they are people who weary the Lord with their words. Let me ask, are you one of these people who continually looks out on the world and continually says in your heart, this isn't fair? Are you one of these people who continually evaluates your life and the circumstances around you with the question, where is the God of justice? If so, hear personally the words of the prophet. I had to hear these words perf- personally this week, and I'll tell you about that later. But, but hear the words of the prophet. You have wearied the Lord. One pastor says, when someone says they are weary of something, it means that his patience is at a limit. When it's the Lord who speaks of being weary with us, we should be holding our breath in fear. Amen and amen. Malachi shows us this is a sin we must guard our hearts against. The moment we see this sin arise in our hearts, the moment we begin to question and challenge and grumble against God's justice and righteousness, we ought to confess that to the Lord as the sin it is, and we ought to turn away from it. For the last thing any believer wants to do is weary the Lord, right? Now that said, one way, maybe even the way, we might repent of this sin is simply by hearing and believing the Lord's answer to this question as it's set forth in Scripture. That's our third point this morning. Notice, this is an answered question. 
the people were asking, where is the God of justice? And God responds by saying, behold, I'm coming. We see this in verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Let's just notice there are two messengers spoken about in this verse. There is the messenger who prepares the way. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Okay, there's the messenger who prepares the way. There's also one called the messenger of the covenant. It's clear that the messenger of the covenant is the greater of these two messengers. And what are we told about this messenger of the covenant? Well, we're told that he comes after the messenger who prepares the way. We're told he is the Lord whom the people seek. This is a way of saying he's the Messiah. All right, the Messiah is the one whom the people of the Old Testament were seeking. So when he says he's the Lord whom you seek, he's saying the messenger of the covenant is the Messiah. We're told that he will come to his temple. We're also told that this messenger of the covenant is almost indistinguishable from the Lord of hosts. Okay, notice in verse 1, the Lord of hosts is the speaker. We see that at the very end of verse 1. And in verse 1a, the Lord of hosts says, I will send a messenger to prepare the way before me, as if he, the Lord of hosts, is the one who is coming. But then he goes on to talk about the messenger of the covenant as the one who is coming. And it's clear, isn't it, that the messenger of the covenant has a unique relationship with the Lord of hosts. In fact, if we didn't know better, we'd say the messenger of the covenant was and is the Lord of hosts. Of course, we do know better. We know that's who the messenger of the covenant is. But that's the point here in Malachi 1. The people asked, where is the God of justice? And God responds by saying, behold, I'm coming. But then after announcing his coming, God asks his people a searching question. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? When I hear the Lord ask that question, I'm reminded of uh, what R.C. Sproul used to say. Sproul uh, said that often when people are confronted by the doctrine of election, those people will respond by saying, that's not fair. And Sproul always reminded us, the moment you say that's not fair, you're asking God for justice. And you don't want to ask God for justice. There's a sense in which that same point is being made here in verse 2. The people are asking, where is the God of justice? And God responds by saying, oh, I'm coming, but are you sure you want me to come? Do you, do you realize 
what my coming means for you. Because it means that even your sin, speaking to the people of God, even your sin must be dealt with. And God proceeds here to tell his people how he'll deal with their sins at his coming. He says this messenger of the covenant will be like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. A refiner's fire is used to remove the impurities off of metals like silver and gold. All right, boys and girls, to to purify silver, you stick it in a blazing hot furnace and you melt it down and all the impurities rise to the surface and you scrape it off and then you put that silver back into the furnace. And once again, the impurities rise to the surface and you scrape them off and you, and you do this again and again and again. That's how you, that's how you purify metal. The messenger of the covenant will be like that for his people. He will be like a refiner's fire, meaning he will be one who removes the impurities from his people. Fuller soap. Well, think of tide. Okay. It was the laundry detergent of the ancient world. Fuller soap was known for the bleaching effect that it had on garments. It would cause them to become bright white again. And and what we're told here is that the messenger of the covenant, he will also be like that for his people. He will will cleanse them from their filth and from their dirt, and, and he will cause them to become bright and white and clean again. And the prophecy goes on, verses 3 and 4. Here we're told that this messenger of the covenant, he will sit as a refiner and as a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and he will refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of of old. So, so here in verses 3 and 4, we're told that this messenger of the covenant who is coming, he will purify God's people both, both on the outside and on the inside. He will cause God's people to be people who are, who are washed clean and who are made white and who, who bring offerings of righteousness to the Lord. Now in verse 5, the Lord is clear. He will draw near for judgment. But before he draws near for judgment on those people out there, on the unbeliever, he says, I'm going to deal with the sins of my own people. I'm going to deal with your sins first. That's what he's saying. Now, here's what we have to remember. The people of Malachi's day had no idea how this would play out. Not a clue. In fact, the people of Jesus' day didn't really understand how this would play out either, which is why John the Baptist, who we know is the messenger, would come to Jesus and say, are you really the one who was to come, right? They were looking at these Old Testament prophecies and they were like, we we hear that said and this isn't quite fitting into our preconceived notions of of how this is all supposed to work, right? These people living on the other side of the cross in the empty tomb, they had no idea how all of these things would play out. We, on the other hand, living 2,400 years after Malachi prophesied, we know almost exactly how all this plays out. Verse 1 plays out through a man named John the Baptist, who is identified by all the gospel writers as the messenger who would prepare the way of the Lord. 
And verse 1 plays out in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ as a baby in Bethlehem. Do you, do you remember what happened very shortly after Jesus was born as a baby in Bethlehem? His parents brought him to where? The temple. Fulfilling the words of the prophet that the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly, suddenly there means surprisingly, come to the temple. That's what happened when Jesus' parents brought him to the temple, just eight days old. And verse 1 plays out on that fateful night long ago when Jesus was celebrating the Last Supper with his disciples, and he showed himself to be the messenger of the covenant when he took the cup and said what? This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And verse 2 played out on the cross where we learn in the New Testament that, that the reason anyone will endure the day of God's coming is because Jesus' blood, almost like a fuller's soap, cleanses us from all of our sins. And Jesus' death, almost like a refiner's fire, purifies a people for himself. Okay, the, the people of Malachi's day, they didn't know how this would play out. We do. And we praise God for it. Of course, if, if verses 1 and 2 played out in Jesus' first coming, I would say verses 3 and 4 are playing out right now. Right now. Notice the first words of Malachi 3.3. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will sit. What does Hebrews 1 verse 3 tell us? It tells us that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay, this is where Jesus is right now. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. What's Jesus doing on his seat at the right hand of God? Well, he's interceding for us. We learn that in Romans 8, 34. I would say that in light of Malachi's prophecy, we might also understand him to be purifying us. That is, he is, he is causing us from his seat at the right hand of God to become the holy and righteous people which he has made us at the cross. He is, he is bringing about sanctification in our lives. He, he is at work even now at the right hand of God, purging his people, you and me, of the sin that remains in our hearts. That's what he's doing. Remember, remember why Jesus gave himself for us on the cross. Ephesians 5, so that he might sanctify us and so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That's what Jesus wants. A splendid church with no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And right now, as he sits on his seat at the right hand of God, that's what he is making us into. That's what he, was, that's what he is doing in our lives. And this present work of Christ, it was foretold through the prophet Malachi long ago when he said he will sit 
as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. The sons of Levi are the people of God. We are priests, the New Testament said. That's who the sons of Levi are. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Now that said, the fact that he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver does help us understand something of how Christ rids our lives of the sin that remains. He does it through the fire of suffering, doesn't he? Suffering is the fire that Christ uses to to purify us and to rid our lives of sin. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness must have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Romans 5, 3 through 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, Paul writes, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope will not disappoint, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us, all right? This, this whole image, it's a little bit of a, of a side point, a tangent on the main point of the text, which we'll come back to, but this whole image teaches us that the great instrument in the hand of Christ to purify the sons of Levi uh, is, is the fire of suffering. Suffering is the means by which Christ burns the sinful dross out of our lives and refines us like gold and silver. This week I I read that when a refiner of silver is doing his work, he, he, he puts the fire in, or excuse me, he puts the silver into the fire, melts it down, pulls it out, scrapes the dross off the top, puts it back into the fire, melts it down, pulls it out again, scrapes the dross and the impurities off the top, puts the silver into the fire, melts it down, pulls it out again, scrapes the impurities off the top, and he does this until he can see his reflection in the molten metal. That's when, he, that's when he knows that his work is complete. And so it is with Christ, right? When we're told he sits as a refiner and purifier of silver, we're being told that from his seat at the right hand of God, where he is sovereign over all, he puts us in the fire and he takes us out again. And he puts us in the fire and he takes us out again. And he puts us in the fire and he takes us out again. And he, he will do this, the Bible says, until when? Until he can see his reflection in us. Then and only then will his work be complete. Then and only then will the refining process be over. But let's just, let's just step back and look at the bigger picture. The people asked, where is the God of justice? And the answer God gives is, I'm coming. I'm coming. But know well, people of God, I'm coming first to deal with your sin. I must confess this week, I, I found grace, much grace in this answer. Riding down the road, throwing a pity party for myself again thinking about how I'd given my life to serve the Lord in ministry and I have very little to show for it, which is sort of a lie by itself. And, and you know, anyways, that's another story. I have much to show for it. But I was throwing that pity party, right? And God, through his word, rebuked me. 
As I subtly asked, where is the God of justice? This word from Malachi that I had been studying this week, it stopped me in my tracks. And God said, God said through his word, behold, I've come as a baby in Bethlehem. And I've paid for your sins through my death on the cross. And I'm now seated in the heavenly realms and in the process of ridding you of sin once and for all. That's where I am. Would you like it any other way, Dirk? Would you, would you prefer I treated you as your sins deserve, Dirk? And to that I said, no. Like Job, I repent in sackcloth and ashes. Perhaps, perhaps you need to do the same this morning. Perhaps you're looking out on the world, you're, you're comparing yourselves to others, you're asking, where is the God of justice? God gives you his answer, I've come in the person of Jesus Christ to pay for all your sins, and I am now in the process of purging you of that sin in order that you might be righteous and holy in my sight, in order that you might be free from any spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Of course, God here is clear, right? A time is coming when he will deal with people as their sins deserve. When the prophets spoke about the comings of Christ or the coming of Christ, they, they were unable to distinguish, it seems, between those first and second comings. To them, it appeared that the coming of Christ was just sort of one big event where all of this stuff would, would happen. But as we know now, there is, there is much time in between the coming of the Lord spoken about in Malachi 3 verse 1 and the coming of the Lord spoken about in Malachi 3 verse 5. We know now there are two comings foretold here. There's the coming of the Lord to deal with the sin of his people. That's what we read about in verses 1, and that's what we celebrate at Christmas. But he also tells us about the coming of the Lord in judgment. That's what we read about in verse 5. The first word there is then. That means after the sins of my people are dealt with, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. There's a number of sins listed there. But do you see who's ultimately in trouble when the Lord returns? It's those who do not fear him. And so I ask in closing, do you fear God? Do you realize that when the God of justice returns, you will be unable to stand before him in your own righteousness? Do you realize that when the God of justice returns, uh, you will be so convinced of your sin and guilt that when he condemns you to hell, you'll say it could be no other way? Do you get it? He will be a swift witness against those who do not fear him. Will he be a swift witness against you? Or will you trust in the one born in Bethlehem long ago? The one called a refiner's fire and a fuller soap. 
the one who cleanses us from our sin and purifies us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for the opportunity we have to study it again this morning. Lord, we confess that we are people who do grumble at times against your justice and who look out at the world and think that things are not fair. Help us to hear the answer that you give us in your word, that you have come, that you are dealing with our sins even now, that you will come again to right all that is wrong. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.